This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hi, my name is Lizzie, and I live in Nightdale, North Carolina, which is right outside of Raleigh. I think for many years I placed comfort in what God could do, and my faith was tied really closely to hope that God could change my circumstances. I remember hearing We Will Feast for the first time, and I know God used that song to bring me comfort, to remind me that one day all things will be made new. My parenting journey has put me in a place where I'm learning to be content with the tension. Our daughter joined our family through adoption. We love her. She's such a beautiful gift to our family. Her early years were marked with loss. My son has significant medical and developmental needs. I never anticipated a wheelchair, a trach, a G-tube for my four-year-old, yet he's taught me to slow down, to value life's simple joys, like a smile, a laugh, being together. Mostly, he's taught me that our value as God's children is in who we are, not what we do. It comforts me to know that this longing that I feel will one day be fulfilled and freed me to hold space for both pain and joy, grief and gratitude, longing and hope. Hey, this is Sandra McCracken, and you're listening to Steadfast. This is a podcast where I sit down and have a conversation with mentors, friends, and people I admire. And we talk about how God's steadfast love shows up in every season of our lives. On today's show, my guest is Kevin Finch, who is the nephew of Eugene Peterson. And his story is one that really centers around um, a restaurant, the restaurant business, and uh, what it is to care for and engage in the lives of people that we sit across the table from or the people that serve our food or the people that cook our food. And I think in today's modern world, we eat out more than ever and there is a big industry around that. So Kevin's story is interesting that it comes from a long line of pastors and has found his way out of a conventional pastoral role by preaching on a Sunday morning and into relationship out in the world and even in restaurants when you sit down to have a meal. So kind of a family of pastors. My grandmother was a pastor, uh, some was a God pastor. And of her three kids, my two uncles both ended up as pastors. And then my mom, the third of the three, married a pastor. My dad actually pastored the church that my grandmother started in Big Fork, Montana. Wow. That's quite it, a history. In a lot of ways, pastoring was the family business, which I didn't realize until later in life. All in the same place. So it was on the same land. Well, there was a lot of, there's not too many people in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> so Big Fork is at the north end of Flathead Lake. And I grew up at the south end of Flathead Lake. So by the time I was born, my dad had moved 35 miles. And fairly unusual for a pastor, he served in that one church his whole career, which is very unusual. I think the average tenure is somewhere between two and four years hmm. in the Assemblies of God that he was there like over 30 is pretty remarkable. My uncle did pretty much the same thing in a church that he served in Maryland. So it's a fairly unique family that doesn't kind of fit the patterns. Mm -hmm. But then my cousin became a pastor. My sister became a pastor. So how about you? I became a pastor. (laughs) (laughs) Was it Um, just like, did you think about it? Did you have to 
well, come to as terms a, so with as it. So as a junior high kid, I think in some ways because I didn't rebel, I wasn't the typical black sheep kid. And part of it was, I think, because there was some real integrity in that whole family. All of those mm. folks, who they were actually reflected what they said in public. Mm. I think sometimes the struggle for children is if there's a disconnect there. If dad's a preacher, but at home he's verbally abusive. Mm -hmm. Then you go, this doesn't make sense. I don't want anything to do with this. For me, my grandmother, she'd walk into the room. You'd think, did God just show up? There was a Mm -hmm. real sense of God's presence that would just kind of, that just surrounded her. Mm -hmm. And that was consistent in the next generation. I love being around my aunts and uncles. I love, my parents were very consistent. So for me, I had the choice of, well, what do I want to do? And so I thought I'd be a doctor because then I could help people, which seemed to be the thing you were supposed to do, Hmm. but also have a kidney-shaped swimming pool in the backyard. That was the goal. (laughs) But when I got to college, I didn't take a single pre-med class. Hmm. So I'm still saying to folks, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. But all my classes were English classes. They were literature that was four languages. It was communication stuff. Hmm. So between my junior and senior year of college, I went and talked to my uncle on Flathead Lake back in Montana. We were cleaning out the gutters of one of the houses and we just were talking and I thought maybe I should go to seminary and just check that out. Maybe I should be a pastor. So went back to Seattle where I was in school and started the care process in the Presbyterian church and ended up back at Princeton when the Peace Corps didn't want an unemployed English major who couldn't speak (laughs) French. It sounds like your grandmother was like a really central figure in your life. What were the attributes like, how would you describe, you say, like, when she walks in the room, what are the things, if you were to, what are the, what's the furniture around that, that made her presence feel that way to you? So again, fairly unusual for a woman to be a yeah. pastor, particularly in the Assemblies of God, which would be more on the fundamentalist end of the church. Mm-hmm. But the trump card in the Assemblies was the Holy Spirit at work in your life. There was just this sense of the Holy Spirit in mm-hmm. Grandma's life out in the boondocks of Montana, basically. Okay, this is kind of the trump card. Mm-hmm. She used to go out with my uncle and do revival services. So when he was a little kid, she'd play her accordion, go out to the Grange Halls and do these revival services mm-hmm. for the lumberjacks. And she's this short little, she looks like grandma. I mean, that's, <laughs> you picture your, picture grandma. With an accordion. <laughs> with an accordion, preaching to lumberjacks probably t- twice her height. Wow. And doing an altar call and they'd be sobbing and coming down and committing their lives to Christ. Mm. I don't remember her as a preacher much because mm-hmm. by the time I was around, it was my dad who was preaching and my grandmother was at that point, the assistant pastor working with my dad. But there was a sense, even when she later in life came down with Alzheimer's and was struggling that you, again, there's that sense of God's presence was so present that she would come out, or my dad would give her a passage of scripture because she wasn't tracking any mm-hmm. longer and say, Evelyn, here's the passage I'd like you to read, bookmark it, give her a Bible. They'd walk out on Five minutes later, she'd stand up to read the scripture. Hmm. She'd pick a different passage, <laughs> but it would be more fitting for what was, she was happening moved that morning. By the spirit, but without, yeah, but yeah. there was no mentally that wasn't possible. Yeah, I mean, even your initial description of her walking into the room, I think that's. On one hand, I think about people that cultivate a life of faith, and mm-hmm. then I think on the other hand, there's this sense that 
do we cultivate it or is it given to us? Mm-hmm. But then you have a family where there are so many threads that are showing the same resonance. Right. It is really profound to get to see that. Yeah. I've often thought that there's the scripture that used to disturb me greatly, which was it said the sins of the fathers are visited on the children to the third and fourth mm-hmm. generation. And when I thought of that in a prescriptive way, I thought, oh my gosh, what a depressing scripture. Yeah. But when you think about it as a descriptive thing, that that's what happens in sin and brokenness in lives rippled down through the generations. But I think the opposite is true too. Mm. Grace and life can ripple down mm-hmm. through generations. And I think I got to be the beneficiary of that. Mm. That's a real gift. I, I have heard and thought a lot about that scripture in my own life and family stories are just part of that. And I I think it is significant. I was thinking recently about how when there's something that you hold on to that's unresolved, mm-hmm. you transmit it to the people around you right. without even knowing that you are. And sometimes it's obvious because it's bitterness and you, you see somebody even from a distance to how they carry themselves, their shoulders, their, mm-hmm. the, you know, their, their jaw. Face. their Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, but the release is also true. So when you transmit light, I mean, when you experience grace at a core Mm -hmm. level it begins to ripple out and affect the people around us i mean i i think that's the great hope right that grace wins What I did coming out of college and seminary is I joined the family business. You know, Mm -hmm. you have families that have a whole bunch of doctors or have a whole bunch of lawyers (laughs) and the kids just end up there. So I joined the family business and was ordained. Mm -hmm. Um, Did that wonderfully for for 15 years. And again, appreciated that role. When I moved to Spokane to take a position in a church in 99, I got the wild and wacky opportunity to also start moonlighting as a restaurant critic. <laughs> so by what day... What was the first time this happened? Like, how did this... Obsessed with food, human vacuum cleaner as a child, <laughs> uh, ate just copious quantities of food. You have siblings? A younger sister okay. who didn't get much food. So she's <laughs> yeah. much smaller than I am because my mom would have to divide the box of sugared cereal in, in half. Otherwise, uh, we would just compete until the last. It's actually a good idea. I've yeah. got two kids that are exactly. <laughs> doing the just same. Just divide it at the beginning, then you That's can eat right. it as slow or as okay. fast as you want. But so as a kid, this human vacuum cleaner, mm-hmm. loving food in quantities, we'd often get invited over to homes after church on Sundays. I was such an embarrassment to my parents because I ate so much, I literally was just unstoppable that my mom would pack two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches before church and then feed them (laughs) to me in the car (laughs) so that I'd still eat more than everybody else, but I wouldn't eat as much more if I had two (laughs) peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Um, But I so love food that I would often say to the mom of the house who in rural Montana is who was cooking, could you give my mom the recipe for this? And fairly quickly, I figured out whether or not she actually gave the recipe to my mom or not, that meant I would get seconds and I would get a fairly large portion of seconds because I was enthusiastic about the food. So this became my shtick. Anywhere I'd ask for the recipe and I'd get more food. And I kept doing this into high school. 
until we went to the home of John and Donna Briggs. She's an amazing cook. They traveled the world. She cooked this phenomenal beef and mushroom teriyaki dish. And Asian food certainly wasn't a big cuisine in Western Montana. So I said what I always did. Uh, could you give my mom the recipe for this? And she looked at me and she said, no. Um, stunned, I'm sure was my facial expression because <laughs> no one had ever said no before. But she then after the pause said, but if you'd like to learn how to cook it, come over next week and I'll teach you. And so for the rest of high school, I'd go over about once a week and she'd teach me to cook something else. Mm. And what I didn't know is that through the rest of high school, she was writing down all of those recipes that we cooked together. Mm. And when I graduated, her graduation gift was a recipe box filled with all of the recipes that we'd cooked mm. together over the years. That is such a great story. I'd like to meet her. <laughs> She's amazing. So a love of food then became an interest in restaurants. And I started in seminary collecting actual restaurant reviews from the mm. critics in the paper. Wow. And would read them and would actually, if it was a place that wasn't too expensive that I could afford on my student budget, right. when it would come out, I would try to beat the crowd and rush in and order one thing that the critic had said <laughs> they liked. Um, so and then see if I agreed with them. Was it as good as they described? And how did they describe it in print? And when we get to Spokane, it had gotten ahead. So when they interviewed me for that pastor position, they took me to these amazing <laughs> restaurants. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, I didn't think Spokane had much of a dining scene. Yeah. Particularly coming from Seattle, which is where I was. When I said yes to the position, I realized about four months later, they had taken me to every restaurant that was worth <laughs> going to in the whole city in that interview in process. short amount of time. <laughs> right. There wasn't anything else. But probably about two years later, two, three years later, a friend who was the editor for the local lifestyle magazine lost their food writer. And we were in a small group together and she just looked across the table. And I think it was a desperation move. It wasn't premeditated in any way. She goes, weren't you an English major? Yeah. <laughs> Aren't you kind of obsessed with food? <laughs> I objected to the the word. She, she was choice. a pro prophetic word right there. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, "Yeah, I love food." She goes, "Would you write this review?" It was a place called the Wolf Lodge Inn, which is this steakhouse out in northern Idaho in the Boondocks. Wow. I said, "So let me get this straight. You're going to pay me to go out and eat, mm -hmm. and all I have to do is write about it." Heck yeah. <laughs> that kind of snowballed. And within about a year, I was writing for the weekly paper doing reviews and the daily paper doing reviews. So and you're still pastoring. Off, still pastoring. So. <laughs> so on my, but on my day off, I would sneak out and do these restaurant reviews. And I took it pretty seriously. So I would be undercover. Yeah. I wasn't announcing that I was coming as a restaurant critic. So for the first couple of years, people didn't know who I was. And I would make sometimes reservations under fake names. Mm -hmm. And I decided I was going to use uh, theologians or saints. <laughs> so it would be Johnny Calvin or Marty Luther or Thomas More. Uh, That's great. I, I thought about using Erasmus. Uh, that seemed a little, <laughs> a little bit obtuse. of a stretch. Did anybody f figure it out? Eventually they did. Uh -huh. And the problem is you can't, I tried to get a, a credit card under a fake name. Apparently that's illegal. So, oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you you can't actually do that. The government doesn't like that. But so I'm starting to write about food. What was surprising to me was that 
none of the folks, and I was serving a fairly large church in a city that functions like a small town that's pretty communal. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anyone in the restaurant hospitality community. They were all new people to me, wonderful people, but there was no overlap with the church community that I served the other six days of the week. Mm -hmm. So it occurred to me that this was a pretty isolated group of people. The second then I stumbled onto the statistics nationally that the restaurant industry just on its side, its own, is the largest industry in the country. Throw mm-hmm. in hospitality folks, you've almost got double the size of the next largest industry. Wow. So it's an isolated group of people. It's a huge group of people. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of probably that first five years of writing reviews, as people got to know me a little bit, as I got to know them, my spidey sense kind of started to go off as a pastor saying, mm-hmm wait a minute, it seems like there's a lot of pain here, a higher concentration of pain than any place I'd ever seen. And then the statistics started to back that up. It was highest rates of drug and alcohol abuse, incredibly high levels of divorce and broken relationships, kind of almost red line stress levels on a daily basis and no safety net. In this industry, if you get sick, you don't get paid. If it's a slow night and you get sent home early, you don't get paid. There's no cushion. There's no padding to your life. Mm -hmm. And you throw in drugs and alcohol. You throw in crazy late night hours that change all the time. It's brutal on families. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of these three things coming together. Very isolated group of people, huge group of people with a lot of pain that made me stop just enjoying my experience of being the Mm -hmm. restaurant critic, running around and eating a lot of food. Still love that. But there was something else going on. Yeah, you're walking around with that lens, you know. I it what causes you to see those things? I feel yeah. like it's a calling. Is it a In some ways, what was it in my life that prepared me to see that? Yeah. In the just pure objective sense, or at least I'm not aware of any other restaurant critics <laughs> or food mm-hmm. writers who also happen to be pastors. That's <laughs> not the typical yeah. trajectory. Yeah. Normally a restaurant critic's a former chef or a former the front of the house manager, folks who've grown up in the industry who then just start writing about the industry because they know it. Mm -hmm. So I think I came having some training Mm -hmm. to ask questions about hurt and pain, maybe that someone in the industry just goes, oh, that's just the reality of what we live with. A few folks make it, the rest of us are right on the edge and way too many folks kind of don't. are not pastoring in a conventional sense these days, but you are, just like you described, you're someone who notices how somebody carries themselves, how how somebody feels by your work in the restaurant business, right? So this is a whole nother side of things. Can you talk a little bit about vocationally the shift from this life as a pastor and in a long line of pastors to an unpaved road, which is like, how do you pastor out in the world without a church building? And what was that process like for you? And one of the pieces going back to the theme of grace is I think everything. So I served as a pastor in traditional settings for about 15 years. I think I was a good pastor. Mm -hmm. I think I did that well. In retrospect, I think that was preparation for what I'm doing now, still being a pastor, but not using the title. I mean, if I use the title of pastor, 
in my current role, people run screaming from the room. <laughs> and yet I think I get to be more of a pastor in how I function now than I ever got to when I had a study with a stained glass window and all my books lined mm. up in the bookshelves. How would you define the word pastor? Probably more in spiritual direction lines, someone who's, and maybe it's back to the priest language of scripture. It's mm. the intermediary. Mm. It'd be the person trying to pay attention to what God's doing in a situation and inviting people into that reality, or maybe pointing that out, or in some cases not pointing it out, but helping to open that up to the point that then the person figures out something more is going on here. Mm. Obviously, in a traditional church, most pastors are getting up once a week and saying, here's where God's at work, here's this scripture, here's that. Mm. Outside of that context, you have to be more creative. Yeah. But it's so much fun. I feel that way with music. So having done singer-songwriter music, I would describe the pastoral aspects of that yeah. in the same, in much the same way. The hope around that. I remember thinking about that as like a 18-year-old and thinking when I'd play in coffee shops and yeah. the idea that you're singing truth out over people and you're hoping that in some way that's stirring some kind of awareness that mm-hmm. wasn't there a few minutes before, you know? Yeah. Often when we do a big table dinner and we'll pray God, would you make these people hungry for you, even if they don't know what they're hungry for? So we're feeding people and praying that that experience would make them hungry for more. Mm. And I think that's the pastoral role. I think mostly the typical understanding of a pastoral role is someone who proclaims Mm -hmm. truth. I feel like it's more in asking good questions, that that's actually much more effective Mm -hmm. than talking at people. Internally, I'm saying, God, where are you in this situation? What are you up to? On the assumption that God got there before I did. God's Mm -hmm. already at work in someone's life. And I get to be a part of paying attention to that rather than kind of riding in to deliver a message Mm -hmm. that probably won't be welcome if that's the way I picture it. I think growing up, I saw the definition of pastorate more external. It's the guy who gets up Mm -hmm. front. Mm-hmm. that does certain external things rather than what the internal framework of that person is that cares for other people in very intentional ways. You know, as I hear you talk about it, I hadn't thought about this before, but it's evident as I hear your story kind of zooming out from it that that Augustinian idea that we're shaped by what we love mm. and that you have a love for people that's shaped by the integrity of your family and your upbringing, mm-hmm. you have a love for food. The feasting, like the, you know, just the joy of that and the experience of it. And then you have a love for words and the way that those things kind of marry in this really unique place. And I guess my suspicion is that all of us are given like a particular fingerprint or a cocktail of of affections. Yeah, Yeah, no pun intended, (laughs) of like affections. So it's like the things that we love and paying attention to those things. So I I think about... Steve Garber talks about the difference between vocation and occupation. Right. And there's, I think something in that middle space is this idea of right. of our heart, like what we care about. Beekner says that vocation is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet, which Very to fitting. me ends up fitting yeah. almost to the word. Right. <laughs> For me, that's been big table. That's been this call to care for a group of people that, quite frankly, I think are way too invisible mm-hmm. in every community around the country. Was that always a joyful progression for you? Were there points of tension because you're doing something, you're kind of breaking out of a norm mm-hmm. to pursue something new? Points of terror. Really? Yeah. Can you talk about <laughs> the, that a little bit? Well, 
So growing up in the Assemblies of God, Pentecostal tradition, holiness tradition, uh, there wasn't a lot of safety net there for pastors at that mm-hmm. point. And I looked at my two uncles who were Presbyterian pastors, and I go, gosh, their church gives them a pension. I think I might be called to be a Presbyterian pastor. <laughs> You're still so, thinking about that kidney-shaped pool. <laughs> that's right, exactly. Uh, so I think there was a desire for safety and security, security yeah. for me. I get so that. when I, So as this call to be a pastor develops, it kind of ended up with this upper-middle-class denomination yeah. That was pretty intellectual, that liked my love of words, that liked the careful crafting of a sermon, maybe more than just the inspiration of the spirit in the moment. That would terrify me to go into the pulpit without a full manuscript. And for me, part of the fun was crafting mm-hmm. those sermons. Fun image of what I thought the job of a pastor was at that point in terms of preaching is I pictured myself as a bus driver. And at the beginning of the sermon, everyone filed onto the bus. And every minute or two, there's a bus stop and the doors open and there's an opportunity for people to leave the bus. And the goal of the sermon was to keep them on the bus (laughs) for the full 20 minutes. (laughs) Because that was kind of the standard Presbyterian length of the sermon was 20 minutes. I've been thinking about with you is that when we've had different occasions to be in a restaurant and I noticed that you know people by name and that you call people by name. And if you just meet them, you call them by name immediately. Is there someone in your life that taught you that? How did you learn the significance of calling someone by their name? Or is it something that just, it's noticeable to me observing Mm -hmm. you as you relate to other people. And I was just curious if you knew where that came from. I don't. I mean, I'm trying to think some of that might be my aunt and uncle, Uncle Gene and Aunt Jan, because growing up, they knew the names, not just of people, but they knew the names of birds and they knew the names of trees. Hmm. Actually, at one of my installation services, I think it was actually when we moved to Spokane, Uncle Gene came and spoke at the installation service and he talked about driving around Flathead Lake, which is where we grew up, with someone not from the area. And as they were driving around the lake, they noticed like 10 different species of birds because they knew their names. They noticed them. Whereas this friend said, I missed those birds. I missed all right. of them. And this is, that's because they're just birds for you. You don't know their names. Once you know their name, you start to notice them. That is, that's a profound reality. And I think about that in the sense of your ability to tune into people in a, in mm-hmm. a restaurant and tuning into mm-hmm. if somebody's shoes are worn out, if someone looks like, mm-hmm. you know, they're frazzled. Just these small interactions, it is a way of naming mm-hmm. someone in the dignity of who they are. And not just like, can you get this for me? Can you get this for me right. fast? You know, um, this isn't what I ordered. Or right. the ways that we normally interact, the most dynamic way that most that someone sitting at a table interacts with the with the staff at a restaurant is typically frustration. If something goes wrong, mm-hmm. people are invisible in a restaurant or a hotel situation. They're just part of the background until something goes wrong. Yeah. That's when a person will tend to look at their name tag and say, "All right, Sally, this is unacceptable. Yeah. Let me talk to your manager." And at that point they remember Sally's name because they're going to rip Sally to the manager. <laughs> yeah. But until that point Although there are a few people who use it kind of almost in a cheesy, 
patronizing way. Oh, Sally, could you bring me some more sugar? <laughs> Be a hun. <laughs> right. Which is different from saying, and what I try to do when I sit down at a table, often the server will introduce themselves right. and say, hey, I'm going to be taking care of you today. My name's Sam. That's a perfect opportunity to say, hi, Sam, I'm Kevin. And then at that point, that becomes more of a relationship so that when Sam comes back and I say, hey, Sam, tell me what's the most life-changing thing on this menu that I should order. That begins a conversation between two people. Yeah, it's very humanizing. And I think in my own personal experience, the family table is very often out at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more than a generation before, two generations before. Which would have been in the home. Yeah. And there are losses to that. There are significant losses, but there are other opportunities, I think. But it, as we interact more in public spaces and in shared spaces, all of those dynamics are changing. And the potential to like dehumanize that experience more and more is yeah. there, just like it is with the way we distance ourselves in technology or in other things where we have less and less actual connection and naming and and knowing. That is something that I observe in the significance of Big Table is what it is to call someone by name and to name each other in dignifying ways. Tell right. us about um, so, Big Table. So I mentioned that coming out of this sense of large industry, very isolated, immense amount of need. I didn't know what to do. I just thought I would give to whatever organization in the country was caring for folks in the restaurant and hospitality industry. Started looking around the Northwest and I couldn't find anything. So I expanded my search to the whole country, only to be stunned that there was no one in the entire country. And at this point, the IRS had a million and a half nonprofits that were registered. Not a single one of those million and a half nonprofits was organized to care for the largest working group of people in the entire country Mm. with the highest amount of need. It just didn't make any sense. Mm other than the fact that the most important part of a uniform for someone working in a restaurant or a hotel is the smile that's on their face. That smile seemed to make all the rest of the need that was present go away. So for me, it was like, this is wrong, but I didn't know what to do about it. Fast forward to 2006, I'm sleeping, and I slept at that point very well. Would go to sleep in about five minutes and wake (laughs) up when the alarm in the morning. (laughs) Middle of the night, About two in the morning, the family's gone, so I'm home alone. I'm instantly wide awake. And it's been the only time in my life this has ever happened. But it was, I went from deep sleep to completely awake. And my thought process was, did the doorbell ring? Did a window break? Is someone trying to get in? What is it that woke me up? And I didn't just lay in bed. I immediately got up and walked to the foot of the bed, pitch black, and just was standing there listening. And heard a voice, which I would say was God's voice. But at the time, I just hear a voice that says, Kevin, I need a pastor, back to that thread, Mm -hmm. for the restaurant industry. And it was a statement followed by this question, are you interested? And I knew I needed (laughs) to respond. And my answer was, uh, yeah, (laughs) but what would that look like? So I said yes, and then followed it with a question. And I said, what would that look like? And it said, because you know they don't want a pastor. And the reason I said that was anytime anyone in the restaurant and hospitality industry found out I was a, a restaurant critic or a food writer, they would kind of collect around the table instantly to have this very animated conversation about mm. where's the best Mexican food or where do you go for brunch or those kind of conversations. I'm sure you've had those mm. when you find someone who gets excited gets about, excited about yeah. food. Inevitably, that conversation would shift and someone would say, well, what else do you do? And without thinking, I'd say, I'm a pastor. And it was like 
cockroaches when you turn on a light. <laughs> Everyone just scattered. I mean, literally a conversation would go from animated and excited to done in about 30 seconds. So I tried an experiment after that happened three times. And instead of saying I was a pastor, I said I was in public relations. <laughs> I did this in a bar in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and nobody left the table. The conversation just immediately just kind bounced. of went back to food. Oh, so you're in public relations. Okay, well, what about what about Thai food? Where do you go for good Thai food? Mm -hmm. So I go to a friend who's a server and said, why is it that anytime I mention I'm a pastor with anyone in a restaurant or a hotel, no one will talk to me? She was a Christian. She said, oh, that's easy. As a server, I hate Christians. Most demanding customers that ever walk into the restaurant, stingiest teppers that ever sit at my table. And they often take the table for too long to study the Bible. Hate Christians. We beg not to work on Sundays. It's the worst shift of the week, which started to make sense of why I could clear a table in 30 mm -hmm. seconds when I said I was a pastor. Back to the night, middle of the night. That's why I said I'd be interested in that job as a pastor for the restaurant industry. But what would that look like? Mm -hmm. That reminds me a little bit of Mary saying, Yeah. Yeah. But how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? <laughs> you know, it's not a question of the, the follow up is a dialogue of a friendship. It's not the question of, I don't believe you. Yeah. It's like, yeah. yeah. But, but what next? Yeah. What are the coordinates? Be it done. What does that look like? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, that was an honest question. Um, and so it's again, pitch black in the bedroom. It's like someone's turned on a light and kind mm -hmm. of a spotlight. And in front of me is a Bible that's open to Acts chapter two, the end of the chapter where Luke describes the early church forming. And in that passage about the early church, mm -hmm. he says, they ate together. And if anyone had a need, they took care of each other. Mm -hmm. And it was like someone highlights those two passages as I'm reading it on this non-existent page in the middle of the night. Yeah. And then the voice said, that's how you pastor this group of people. Feed them and care for them and watch what I'll do. What's so amazing to me with Big Table, so that was 2006, it's 2017 now. That's exactly what we're doing. We create community around a table and we care for folks who are in crisis. Going back to grandma and that there's a sense, a palpable sense of the Holy Spirit present in that room around this mm. literally big table that seats 48 with dishwashers and servers and line cooks and housekeepers that are sitting there with the owners and managers of hotels and restaurants eating an, a phenomenal meal that they don't pay for and telling us who's in trouble that they know that we could care for. How do you handle the aspect of being a pastor to them <laughs> in that situation? You know, does it feel right. like a bait and switch? Or are you like, all right. of a sudden, wait, I'm going to tell you the four spiritual laws right. <laughs> after the second the course. Um, it's just, hey, this is a gift. Um, toward the end of the night, after they've had a glass of wine or two, and it's between the, <laughs> the fourth and fifth See, courses of this phenomenal <laughs> meal, I'll say, you know, the reason you're here is this is the toughest industry I've ever come across. And you know that better than I do. We want tonight to be a gift, but there's one other thing you need to know about me. And that is that for 15 years, I was a pastor and I intentionally use past tense, even though it's technically still I am. <laughs> and I follow that by saying, but anytime I mentioned that, none of you would talk to me. And with 48 of them sitting around the table um, and me standing up yeah. there and kind of delivered like a stand up line, yeah. they laugh, yeah. which is exactly what I want them to do. Because once there's a laugh, it breaks the ice. And I can go on to say, so if any of you have questions about faith, 
I would totally love to have that conversation with you. Uh, but if you're agnostic, if you're atheist, if you've been burned by religion, you are totally welcome at this table because we're about creating community around food and caring for folks who are hurting. And I think, uh, I think the church has used faith as a prescription. It's, you need Jesus. Rather than say, what are the resources in your life that you use when things get tough? Could this be a resource for you? Mm. And I think that if we enter people's lives genuinely to care for them, they want a relationship. For folks in the industry, probably about half of the conversations we have with folks who literally would run the other direction when they heard I was a pastor. Now, about half of those conversations are conversations that include faith. Because as long as they know there's not a target painted on their chest, they've got mm -hmm. lots of questions yeah. about the meaning of life and what's important and where do I fit in this? And if we can say, let's have that conversation, not because I've got an agenda for your life, but because I think someone loves you, it changes everything. Yeah, and that's an embodied theology. Like it's a theology that's not just teaching, putting information or worldview in somebody's head. It's actually yeah. an embodied theology because then the faith conversations are coming up around, okay, well, there's this single mom, there's a childcare mm -hmm. thing that we have to work out. Yeah, That is a theological conversation every Absolutely. time. So these very practical conversations become places yeah. of which is yeah. how really i mean it's so basic but it's of yeah. course how relationship works yeah and when that exchange of love is happening and it's not transactional that's the grace that's like the flow of grace that begins to change our posture and our countenance yeah. and our kindness to each other and again it goes back for me theologically to god's already at work in this person's life god loves yeah. this person way more than i ever will be able to right if i could just let them know how much they're loved that's what they need to know first. Another moment where I felt like God kind of spoke to me. It was in the middle of a conversation in a restaurant with the owners of the restaurant and their chef. And one of them said something that immediately from my kind of Christian, what's right, what's wrong, I went, what do we do with this? Uh -huh. And internally I said, all right, God, what should I do with that? And God said, do with what? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, this issue that's clearly an issue of sin and brokenness. And he says, why don't you keep doing what you've just been doing for the last <laughs> hour, which is listening to them and loving on them. Mm -hmm. And then th again, this would fit almost the call in the night piece. Mm -hmm. Here's what I felt God said. He said, Kevin, why would anyone care about my kind of challenges or expectations for their life until they know how much I love them? Why would anyone care about that? And I, I think that's profound because if you know that someone deeply loves you and they say this might be helpful for you, mm -hmm. that's totally different than someone who comes into your life and says, you need to change this. Well, why do I need to change it? Mm -hmm. There's no credibility until there's love. How did you learn that? Was there a moment for you? And this will be, we'll kind of wind down. Um, there's a lot of mystery to that, I realize. But 
when I hear you talk, I realize you're someone who knows, has this core understanding of being loved. And I know all of us experience varying degrees of doubt and certainty of that. Right. Was there a moment for you that comes to mind in your life where you're like, I feel this to be true? Maybe mm-hmm. not necessarily conversion, but conversion of sorts where you mm-hmm. felt that to be true. And you, you, I think sometimes it presupposes that there's some, there's darkness so that you can experience the light, you know? Interestingly, a guy by the name of Ben Campbell Johnson wrote a book on evangelism called Speaking of God, Evangelism as Initial Spiritual Direction. Hmm. And he wow. says that God gave us two ears and one mouth. Maybe we should take a clue from that in how we engage <laughs> other people. And then he goes on to say that the typical model of conversion is an altar call. And you think of an old Billy Graham crusade or these things where you've got a speaker saying, here's the way, come mm-hmm. down. Here's the decision. Here's the decision you need to make. And the images of a person coming down to the altar and leaving behind one life and entering a new life. I grew up in the church. I would have to manufacture an altar call conversion because everybody I knew was a Christian or mm-hmm. all the folks that I cared the most about were Christians and not only Christians, but were Christians with integrity. So Johnson says there's another kind of conversion. It's a table call conversion. It's the moment where you kind of grow up knowing that there's a place for you at the table. There's a seat that's got your name on it. And the conversion for you is the moment you say, I want my seat. And you sit down and scoot Mm. up to the table. (laughs) That's beautiful. That was my conversion. So I didn't have the radical, I'm doing all this stuff. I'm a drug dealer, running women, been shot by a rival, and I'm laying in a gutter and a light comes and God says, you need to change your life. I was the kid who was in, uh, didn't go to parties. (laughs) Evangelical royalty. Yeah. (laughs) For me, it feels like conversion has been continually scooting up closer to the table. Hmm. So there was a moment in high school when I said, I think I want to do this. There were multiple moments along hmm. the way. And I still feel like that's what I'm doing almost on a daily basis. There's a painting that is a derivative of the famous Trinity painting where there's a seat that you're like the viewer hmm. is is yeah. the seated. There's one. Have you ever seen this? It's like three homeless people sitting oh, really? around um, and there's a there's a meal in the center, but you're the fourth. And it is a really powerful piece that comes to mind when you say that. Hmm. I think of God's invitation to us through the Trinity as this fundamental core place of being invited to the table mm-hmm. and to pull up a seat at the table. And that the Trinity being broken is then what opens a space for us to enter in mm. and to participate in it in that way. And then taking that out into this the vision for big table and just yeah. imagining like the, the opening at that table yeah. and the, the seat with your name on it. And it's a very moving story to hear like just hearing that and imagining that that's something that we all even if we're not in spokane or in the places where you actually have this table yeah there's something that we take with us yeah every time we go in in a restaurant i think the best teachers are folks who make things simpler rather than make things more complex. What you Mm. come away with is, wow, that's a really smart person and they're really impressive and I could never do that. Mm. I think that's a failure. Mm. I think what you wanna do is go, oh, I could do that. Mm. I could be that, or I could cook that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, it translates to music too. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it would. Well, I mean, I think the best musicians, you go, that's amazing. And it looks simple, even though there's all that craft and Right, they make it look effortless and, mm-hmm. and invite you into it. Right. Pull up a seat at yeah. this table. Yeah, be a part of this experience yeah. and experience God here. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Steadfast is a Harbor Media production. It was produced by Mike Cosper. It was edited by Mike Cosper and TJ Hester. Mixed by Mark Owens. It was recorded by Seth Talley. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. In the meantime, if you want to be part of this conversation, if you have a story you want to share about God's steadfast love and the way He has met you and the circumstances of your lives, then we'd love for you to share it with us. Record a voice memo on your phone and email it to steadfastwithsandra at gmail.com. We will be featuring some of these stories on the upcoming episodes. All right. Thanks so much, folks. See you in two weeks.